so good. Yeah, I think uh, I want to thank Allison for sharing their story, Scott and Allison, who are a part of our church, and what a beautiful little girl they brought into their home. And I cannot tell you how pumped I am about this, about us launching this brand new special needs ministry, these new special needs environments. Uh, I believe it's going to give us the ability to reach and serve families that we are not currently reaching and serving. And uh, again, I, I'm just excited that we can be a church where, where any family can come, any person can come and, and feel a sense of love and belonging. And so as Allison just shared, what we need though to pull this off is you, all right? Um, we've got rooms ready here in Cartersville and, and we're piloting this here in Cartersville. By the way, if you give here faithfully week in and week out, thank you so much. You have helped pay for these rooms that are gonna be used to serve these kids and families. And so your generosity continues to make a difference. But we're gonna pilot this in Cartersville with the ultimate goal of expanding this to Rome and Adairsville. So our folks there just know this is coming for you too. But to pull this off, we need you, all right? Uh, we can't just clap at a video. We need some of you to step up and get your hands dirty, okay? So let me just say this. If something was going on in your heart while you were watching that, um, something was stirring and you're like, I think that's me. I think I'm supposed to do that. We really want to talk to you at every location. And so the easiest way to, to let us know of your interest is to fill out our serve form. And you can find it on the Crosspoint app. There's a button that says serve. Just click on it. Or you can visit the URL on the screen, crosspointcity.com forward slash serve. Just fill the form out, and there's a drop-down box that says, where do you want to serve? What ministry are you interested in? If you will just click on special needs, someone from our team will follow up with you immediately and get you all that info, all right? We are working on a time frame. The plan is to do training in January and February so that we can launch these new environments before Easter. And so we need to hear from you quickly um, if you got any questions, again, our team members can answer that for you. But let's just all be praying, man. It's going to make a, a big difference in the lives of many families. I'm believing that, okay? All right. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Head to John 6 with me, if you will. We're in week 18 of our series on John's Gospel, so we have made it through five chapters in 17 weeks. We are making progress by the grace of God. Amen. But, uh, but John chapter 6 is where we're going to be. As a guy who has grown up in church, I have realized over the years that there are some really smart Christians who believe some really dumb things. And one of those dumb things is this, that God never gives us more than we can handle. Have you ever heard someone say that? Uh, they're suffering, they're going through it in some way. And in an effort to make themselves feel better, they say to you, but I know God never gives us more than we can handle. Oh, but he does. And he does it all the time. You see, the truth is God never gives us more than he can handle. But he always gives us more than we can handle so that he can enter in and handle what we can't handle, all to put his glory and his power on display. And this is exactly what we see happening in our text for today. Jesus gives his disciples way more than they can handle. And they know it's more than they can handle. You're going to see it in just a moment. But Jesus shows up and he handles this impossible situation. And he once again reveals his identity as the son of God. And so let's get to work. All right, John 6 verse 1 is where we're going to pick it up. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And we're going to stop there for a moment and just set the scene, okay? John tells us that all of this is happening sometime after the John 5 stuff, all right? Uh, We're not sure of the exact time frame. We do believe that this is happening in chronological order. And so sometime after what happens in John 5, Jesus goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is also known as the Sea of Tiberias, because in the year AD 20, this guy named Herod Antipas, he was a Roman governor, he founded this city on the western shore of the sea, and he named it Tiberias in honor of a Roman emperor, and that city actually served as the capital of his kingdom. And so we know from Luke's gospel, Jesus is on the other side of the sea. He's on the eastern shore in or around this town called Bethsaida, And that detail will be important to the story here in just a moment. But he's there, and there's this large crowd that's following Jesus. And when you study the language, it seems to be the same crowd that has been following Jesus all throughout John, all right? Why? Because they kept seeing the signs or the miracles he was performing on the sick. So these are the people that we've talked about week after week with sign-dependent faith. They were following Jesus, not because they wanted him, but because they wanted something from him. And so Jesus, knowing that this large crowd is after him, he goes to this mountain, takes his disciples, they have a seat, and John tells us that the Passover was at hand. Now, we talked about Passover pretty early on in the series when we were in John chapter 2. We're going to talk about Passover again later in the series, because the Gospel of John is really organized around three Passovers. At Passover, number one, Jesus came into the city, and he went into the Jerusalem temple, and he wrecked the place. Y'all remember that if you were here? Okay, if you weren't, I preached a message called When God Gets Angry. You can go find it and uh, have fun with that one. But, But Jesus shows up, and he goes into the temple, and he starts turning over tables and driving people out with whips because God was being dishonored in his own house. And the religious leaders of his day, they were taking advantage of poor and powerless people. And Jesus on that day proved himself as the true temple. As the one who came to tear down that old religious system that cannot save. And he proved himself to be the one who provides sinners like you and me access into the very presence of God. This is who he is. At Passover number three, Jesus will enter Jerusalem for the very last time. And again, we'll see that weeks from now, but at the end of that Passover week, Jesus gave his life in our place for our sins to save us and restore us back to God. This is Passover 2, all right? And right before Passover 2, Jesus makes this amazing announcement that he is the bread of life. Several weeks from now, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to really dig into that announcement, but he's making the point that he's the one you and I must feast upon if we truly want to experience the eternal life God offers, and I tell you that to make this point, the miracle you're going to see today, it's all a setup for that announcement. This miracle you're going to see today does not stand alone. It is directly tied to that announcement. But John includes this detail on the Passover for two primary reasons, okay? One is theological, just reminding us of who Jesus is yet again. Because it was during this time of year, every year, that the Jewish people, millions of them, would travel into the city to celebrate God freeing their ancestors from Egyptian slavery. 
You can read all about that in the book of Exodus, but the way God freed them was through a Passover lamb. Okay, after serving for 400 years as slaves in Egypt, God finally raised up a deliverer for his people, and he started sending plagues onto the land to convince the Pharaoh to let his people go. And the 10th and final plague was the death of the firstborn. God swept throughout the land of Egypt, killing all the firstborn of the Egyptians, but he made this special provision for his people, the nation of Israel. He told every family to take a lamb. It had to be a male lamb. It had to be at least a year old, no spots or defects or blemishes, and he instructed them to kill the lamb. I want you to kill it and take some of its blood and put it on the doorpost of your homes so that when I pass through the uh, the land, I'll see the blood and pass over your home, sparing your families from death. Okay, John's reminding us here, Jesus is our Passover lamb. This is who he does. He saves his people out of spiritual death, releases his people out of spiritual slavery. He is the lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, who takes away the sin of the world. And so ultimately, this feast finds its fulfillment in Christ. Now, the second reason John includes it, it's political. He includes it for a political reason. One commentator I read this past week compared the, uh, the Passover for the Jews to the 4th of July for us as Americans. You know, it's that day every year where us here in the South, we put on our jean shorts and our American flag tank tops and we fill our pockets with fireworks and we go to the barbecue, right? All for the glory of this great nation, the United States of America, praise God. <laughs> and the day is about freedom. We celebrate the fact that we are a free people. And so if you think about the nationalistic fervor that exists here on the 4th of July, that same fervor existed in Jerusalem during the Passover week. And that'll be very, very important at the end of this sermon, so hold on to that, and we're gonna come back to it, all right? But John goes on in verse five. He says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Now, when we get to verse 10 here in just a moment, we're gonna find out that this large crowd following Jesus, it was comprised of some 5,000 men. That's a really big crowd. Because if you think about it, in the ancient world, entire cities and towns could have been like two, three, four, 500 people. 5,000 men, that is a very big crowd. Now, that doesn't even take into consideration the women and children that would have been there. Uh, There are some Bible scholars like D.A. Carson who believe that when you add in the women and children, this crowd could have been upwards of 20,000 people. So I just want you to imagine the scene as best you can, and I want you to put yourself in Philip's shoes. He was one of the disciples, right? So imagine you're there, you're sitting next to Jesus on this hillside, and you look up, and you see the largest crowd you have ever seen in your life coming toward you. 20,000 people. And by the way, you're in your hometown. Philip was from Bethsaida, okay? And so you're there where you grew up, and imagine Jesus looks at you, and he's like, hey, bro, you're from around here. Uh, You're familiar with this place. Where is the closest bread store? Where can we go and buy some bread to feed all of these people? Now, can we just be honest? That feels a bit overwhelming, doesn't it? That feels like a situation you probably would not be able to handle on your own, doesn't it? And that was the point. Okay, John tells us that Jesus asked Philip this question to test him. 
It's not like Jesus didn't know what he was going to do. He knew exactly what he was going to do. Jesus was about to handle this situation, but he tested Philip because he wanted to see if Philip believed if he could handle the situation. And I need you to hear me on this. One of the primary reasons Jesus lets us handle things we can't handle is to test our faith. He wants to see if we truly believe in his ability to handle what we can't handle. And he does it, James 1, to stretch us, to grow us, to mature us, and to make us more like him ultimately. See, I think some of you need this reminder today because here's the truth. Some of you are going through some really hard stuff right now. Really hard stuff. Your marriage is falling apart. You got a spouse who doesn't know Jesus. You got a prodigal kid on the run. You just got that call from the doctor that you were hoping you would not get, and he gave you the really bad news about your health. Some of you have lost a job recently right here at Christmas time. Some of you are suffering. You're going through it, and here's the problem. You are trying to handle that really hard situation on your own. For some reason, you have not brought that thing to Jesus just yet because something inside of you is telling you that you can handle it better than, than he can. And I just want to say out of love for you, no, you can't. You can't. And until you bring that hard thing to him, nothing will ever change, which is not me telling you or promising that Jesus will change the situation. I am promising that if you'll bring it to him, he will change you in the face of it. And so my encouragement to you would be stop trying to handle what you can't handle and let Jesus handle it. Ask him to enter in. This is where Philip failed. Jesus tests his faith and Philip fails the test. We see it in verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Now, I wonder if you've ever made this mistake. Have you ever faced a situation that you knew you could not handle, but instead of bringing it to Jesus and trusting him to do what only he can do, you start looking at what you have? You ever done that? Okay, what do I have at my disposal that I can use to get myself through this? You ever done that? What do I possess that I can use to power my way through this? This is what Philip does. Hey, bro, where are we going to buy bread? And Philip's like, give me a minute. I need to go count some money. And he goes and gets out the money bag, and he comes back to Jesus, and he's like, hey, all we have is 200 denarii. Okay, one denarius, that was a day's wage for the average worker during this time. The NIV tells us that 200 denarii, that would have been about eight months worth of wages. And so Philip is like, Jesus, even if we spent eight months worth of money right now, we couldn't buy enough bread to give those people even a little. That'd be like us lining everybody up, taking them to the grocery store, putting them in the sample line, and then not everybody gets a sample. And so Philip and Jesus are having this conversation, and Andrew shows up, another one of the disciples, and he brings this little boy. And this is such an interesting moment. Um, this is the one miracle. Here's some Bible trivia for you. This is the one miracle that appears in all four Gospels, the only miracle that appears in all four Gospels. This is the only Gospel in which the little boy is mentioned. And so Andrew brings this little boy to Jesus. He has five barley loaves which was the bread of choice for poor people in the day of Jesus Christ. 
and he's got two fish, all right? And, and don't think big fish. These were not like salmon. These were like sardines. These are the kind of fish you'd put on a cracker, okay? And so this little boy brings this stuff. And it's believed by most Bible scholars that the reason Andrew brought him is because he asked to be brought to Jesus. So just think about that. This little boy shows up in the middle of the madness, and he is tugging on Andrew's pants leg, and he's like, sir, I see the crowd. I see that you have no idea what to do with the crowd, but I have some stuff that I'd like to give Jesus. I think it might help. And there's a great stewardship principle in this that I don't want us to miss. And so let me just read it to you and just lean in, okay? Here's what I want you to hear. It doesn't matter how much or little you bring what matters is Jesus' ability to do miraculous things with what you give. Okay, let me just say this again. I need you to hear me on this. It does not matter how much or little you bring. What matters is Jesus' ability to do miraculous things with what you give. You see, here's the problem for some of you. You think you need to bring Jesus a lot for him to do a lot. And that's not the truth. Jesus can do a whole lot with very, very little. You're going to see it in just a moment. Do you remember at one point he even told his disciples, hey, fellas, with, with faith the size of a mustard seed, you can actually move mountains. Jesus does not need a lot from you. All Jesus asks is for you to put into his hands what you have in your hands, trusting in his ability to do far more with it than you ever could. This is stewardship. It's when we bring to Jesus in faith what he's given to us, no matter how little or much it might be. This is why at Crosspoint, we spend all of our time not talking about equal giving, but equal sacrifice. We don't talk about equal giving. We talk about equal sacrifice. Here's what I know. We don't all make the same amount of money, so we can't all give the same amount of money, right? We just can't. Um, we don't all have the same types of gifts, and so we can't all offer the same types of gifts. We don't all have the same amount of time in our lives. Some of us are way more strapped than others. Some of us are way more free than others. So we can't offer the same amount of time in terms of quantity. We can't give equally, but we can sacrifice equally. Are you tracking with my logic here? And this is what Jesus calls us to do, to bring to him what we have, no matter how much, no matter how little, to put it in his hands. And when you trust him in that way, he can use what you give not only to change your life, but the lives of people around you. And here's what's amazing in the story. The little boy uh, seemed to get it. The disciples didn't get it. The little boy seemed to understand that. The disciples didn't understand that. They're freaking out because the, the crowd is huge, and the little boy's like, I got some stuff. Hey, Jesus, I'd love for you to have what I have. Maybe you can use this to do something about all that. And, and I think this is the danger of abandoning childlike faith. Isn't it sad that the older we get, the more logical we get? The older we get, the more reasonable we get. And we lose our ability to dream and to create and to awe and to stand in wonder. And so what we often do in life is we look at these really, really hard situations and we just conclude nothing will ever change with that. And this is the attitude we see in Andrew in this moment. He brings the little boy, but he's like, Jesus, is that really gonna help? Come on, man, it's five loaves and two fish. What are they for so many? And I love how Jesus responds. Verse 10, have the people sit down. Just have the people sit down. Now, if you were Philip or Andrew, would you have expected that from Jesus in this moment? 
Okay, I'm just going to be honest, and maybe this is where I lack in faith at times, but if I were them, I don't think I would have expected that. I would have probably expected Jesus to say to me, you know what, you're right. The crowd is huge, and we don't have enough. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough resources, and so let's just send these guys away, and they can fend for themselves. By the way, according to the other gospels, that's what the disciples wanted to do. They even asked Jesus, can't we just send them away? into the surrounding villages and let them feed themselves, but that is not what Jesus does. He's like, hey boys, set the table. Get things ready. Get the people to take a seat. I'm curious again, have you ever been in a really hard situation, one you knew you couldn't handle, and the Lord asked you to do something like that? Something that makes absolutely no sense? And you're looking at it and you're thinking to yourself, well, Jesus, if I do what you want me to do, it might make things worse. In fact, Jesus, if I do that, the thing that I think you want me to do and you don't come through, both of us are going to look like idiots. You ever been there? Man, I can remember years ago being there. Um, This is one of my favorite stories from the life of our church and I will share it as long as I'm the pastor here. I remember just a couple years in, we were relaunching this church after a really, really hard season. Uh, This church went through a season that kills a lot of churches, and by the grace of God, we made it. And on the other side of it, we took the people and the resources that were left and basically started over. And during that time, we needed to refinance our old building in downtown Cartersville because we needed to get it into the new church name. And then secondly, the interest rate was about to spike, and it was going to be way too expensive for us to stay in that building. And so I found out pretty late in the game that we needed to come up with $100,000 in 10 days to refinance that building. Now, you got to understand, at the time, our church was much smaller. Uh, at the time, we had a much smaller budget. And so we didn't have hundred grand just sitting in a bank account somewhere to, to make a payment like that. I got together some godly men from within our church and I shared the need and I said, man, I need you to pray with me and I need you to seek the Lord's face with me. We need his wisdom in how to handle this. And so we prayed and we came back together and I said, guys, what are you sensing? And every man in the room, myself included, we were all sensing the same thing. We need to ask the people to give. We need to ask the people to give. Okay, I gotta be honest, I wrestled, man. Because that is not an exciting ask. It's not like, hey, will you give 100 grand so we can start a special needs ministry? Woo! No, it's like, hey, will you give 100 grand so we can refinance a building? That's like super lame, right? But I did. I stood in front of our church and I said, here's the deal, here's the need, and will you give? I feel like the Lord is impressing upon us to ask. Will you give $100,000 so we can do this? And wouldn't you know it, 10 days later, we had $103,000 and some change. It's insane. But I, I share the story to make this point. That is what Jesus does when you bring situations to him that you know you can't handle. Somehow, some way, he handles it. And this is what we see in the story. Verse 10, pick back up. Now, there was much grass in the place. That matters because Passover always happened in the spring when the grass was still green. John's just paying attention to detail here. He's letting us know he's a credible writer. And so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. 
So again, just picture the scene, if you will. Jesus says to the little boy, thank you so much. I'll take the bread. I'll take the fish. Appreciate you, buddy. And he blesses these things. He starts, uh, he starts by giving thanks for these things. And if Jesus would have used the common form of Jewish thanksgiving, he would have said something like this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And so I just misspoke a moment ago. Let me clarify what I'm saying here, okay? Jesus in this moment did not bless the food itself. He blessed God for providing the food, okay? The food was already blessed because it had come from God. And this is why you and I pray before meals. When we pray before meals, we're not asking God to bless the food itself. I know sometimes we do this because we're feeling really guilty about what we're about to eat, right? Like, God, please bless this ice cream. Would you just please bless it? And please bless this beautiful chocolate cake that I'm about to feast upon. And, but, but in reality, again, we're not blessing the food. We're blessing God for providing the food. We're stopping, in other words, in a moment, and we are recognizing that everything we have, including the very food that sustains our life, comes from his hands. We stop, and we thank him for being our provider. This is what Jesus does, okay? The little boy brings it, but Jesus is recognizing God is the one who provided it. And this, then, is where he performs the miracle. After thanking God, he begins to multiply the bread. After thanking God... He begins to multiply the fish, and then he distributes it to the people. And the way he distributes it to the people is through the disciples. Okay, John doesn't mention that in his account, but in the other gospel accounts, this is what we see, that Jesus gives the food to his disciples, and the disciples in turn serve the people. And my friends, this is still the way Jesus does it today. This is still his strategy for ministering to his world today. If you are a disciple of Jesus, he has called you to go into the world and to serve people in need. And we're talking, obviously, about physical needs. We just did this yesterday at Hope for Christmas. Praise God. It was an amazing day. Thank you again to all of you who served and gave and prayed. It was awesome what God did. But, but he calls us to do that. We see it clearly in Matthew 25. I take these words very literally, that we are to feed the hungry and give drink to the thirsty and clothe the naked and invite in the stranger and care for the sick and visit those who are in prison. This is why as a church, we do a lot of the compassion ministry that we do. We believe Jesus was actually being serious there. Nothing figurative about that passage. At the same time, Jesus also calls us to go into all the world and to proclaim the gospel. This is Matthew 28, the Great Commission. We go to all nations, we preach Jesus, we baptize men and women, and then we teach them how to follow him. And here's the thing, Jesus has given us everything we need to do that. Jesus Christ has given you everything you need to do what he has called you to do, okay? He's given you money, like you do know your money ain't your money, right? And I know, man, you work hard for it and you show up every day and you bust your tail or somebody gave it to you, it was an inheritance, but let's just be real, God owns it all. And I say this all the time when we talk about money here, the greatest evidence of that is the fact that you're dying one day and it ain't coming with you. It is, you can store up as much as you want, but when you're dead and gone, it's all staying here and then somebody else is gonna come along and waste it all, all right? It ain't yours, God owns everything. He gave it to you. He also gave you your talents, He's given you, if you know him, spiritual gifts. He's given you natural abilities. Some of you, he has given great influence. And he's put those things in your hands, not so you can keep them. 
Can you imagine if the disciples would have kept all that Jesus gave them? It's like, thank you, more bread, more fish, more bread, more fish, love some bread, love some fish, thank you, Jesus. If they would have kept all that, the truth is there would have been plenty of people in that crowd that would have stayed hungry and this morning gathered at all of our locations, we'd be reading the Bible and judging them for being selfish jerks. Am I right? Can you imagine? So let me just say this. I believe truly with all my heart that one of the primary reasons that there is still so much need in our world today is because too many people are doing that. And too many professing believers are doing that. Instead of using what they have been given to serve people in need, they are keeping what they have been given to serve themselves. And then they're looking around at the world wondering, why isn't God doing something to meet all these needs? I heard a pastor talk about this years ago, and it's always stuck with me. He said, there's all these people who think they're going to stand before God one day and question him for the needs that existed in the world. Like, God, how could you let all those kids starve to death? God, how could you let all those people die from preventable illnesses? God, how could you let people go into eternity without ever hearing the name of Jesus? Can I tell you the truth? You are going to stand before God one day. We all are. And you're not going to be questioning him. He's going to be asking you those questions. Hey, I put you in the world to do something about those needs. And I gave you everything you needed to address those needs. And so why don't you tell me? Why would you let all those kids starve to death? Why'd you let all those people die from preventable illnesses? Why, why did you allow people to step into eternity without ever hearing the name of Jesus Christ? Here's the question I have for you today. Are you using what Jesus has given you to serve those in need? Are you using what he's given you to serve those in need? Are you using your time and your talent and your money to get the gospel of Jesus Christ to people in places where it's needed? And are you using your time and your talents and your money to serve other image bearers who are suffering in some way so that they know how valuable their lives are to both you and God? Are you using what he's giving you to serve people? Because that's your purpose. It's what Christ has called you to do, to do for other people what he has first done for you. Mark 10, 45. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if you follow Christ, that's your purpose, to give your life away in the service of people. And can I tell you the good news? When you do that, God includes you in his miraculous saving work. This is what we see in the text. The disciples go from faithless to service, and then Jesus uses them as part of the miracle. They're out there serving people, and John tells us that this crowd, 20,000 people, ate as much as they wanted. Matthew 14, 20, the gospel writer tells us there that they ate until they were satisfied. And not only that, there were leftovers. Did you see that in the story? There were left like 12 baskets of leftovers. So it was like this whole crowd went and feasted at the Golden Corral Buffet, and then the 12 disciples left with to-go boxes. Pretty amazing, isn't it? See, this is what Jesus does when he meets needs. He doesn't just kind of do it. He overdoes it. Why? Because he is a God of abundance, not a God of scarcity. And some of you need to be reminded of that great truth today. And he says to his disciples, go gather the abundance, go gather the leftovers so that nothing may be lost. And, and later in John 6, that phrase will matter. I'll show it to you when we get there. But I want to show you how the people respond. Verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, 
Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right, go back to earlier in the sermon with me. Do you remember the nationalistic fervor that I mentioned? Yeah? Okay, this is where we see it in the story. And I wanna try to do my best to illustrate it for you. So imagine, if you will, the United States of America being captured by a foreign enemy. Just imagine that. Another country comes in and they take us over and we are paying higher taxes than we've ever paid. Our freedoms are more limited than they've ever been. But imagine also at the same time that we have this promise that one day a king would come, a ruler would come, and when that guy showed up, he would deliver us from all of our enemies. And then imagine the 4th of July rolls around, okay? This day on which we celebrate our freedom, but at the time we're not really free. And so you put on your little jean shorts and your American flag tank top and you fill the pockets with fireworks and you go to the barbecue with 20,000 of your closest friends. Now, imagine the person in charge of that barbecue. They show up, and all they have are two ribs and five baked potatoes. And you're mad, man. You're like, dude, I'm starving. I haven't eaten all day because I thought we were going to feast and throw down. And in the middle of that, some guy shows up, and he's like, tell everybody to take a seat. I've got this. And then it's like magic. All of a sudden, like ribs are just coming out of the grill left after right, right? This guy just keeps pulling baked potatoes out of the bag, potato after potato after potato, and he's got a posse with him. They're passing out all the food, and, and by the end of it, man, you're so full that you can't stand up. You know, you're having to unbutton the top button on those jean shorts because your belly's just, you're just miserable, right? Okay, if that happened, what would you think about that guy in that moment? You'd probably think that might be him. That might be the guy, the guy that someone promised would come. This is what's happening in the story. Here are the people of God, the nation of Israel, who hundreds of years earlier had been set free, free from the Egyptians, but at this point in their history, they were free no longer. You see, in the days of Jesus, they were being ruled over by the Roman Empire. Yet, they had all these promises from God in the Old Testament to one day send a king, a Messiah, who would save them from all of their enemies, and they were always on the lookout for this guy, but even more so during the Passover season, because they knew, man, like, free but not free, and so Jesus shows up, and he does this unbelievable miracle, and when the people see it, they're like, ooh, that might be him. I I think that might be the guy. That's the prophet that Moses said would come. And do you remember those 5,000 men in the crowd? John says in the text that these 5,000 men were ready to take Jesus by force and make him their king. And how does Jesus respond? He dips. He leaves. He withdraws. And here's why. Because the kingship this crowd wanted from Jesus It was the same kingship that Satan wanted from Jesus. And we see it in Matthew chapter four at his temptation. You can read that on your own time this week. But right after Jesus' baptism, the spirit of God took him into the wilderness where he was tempted 40 days. Okay, fasted and he was tempted by the devil. He's out there 40 days. And I want to just say this before I move into this next part because I think some of you need this. Sometimes the devil will come after you the hardest right after you take a significant step of faith. Or sometimes it's right before one. 
Like after the wilderness, Jesus would launch his public ministry. Some of you have chosen recently to follow Jesus and now your life is harder than it's ever been and you're like, what's going on? The enemy's after you. Some of you have been feeling a call to step into a certain kind of ministry and all of a sudden life's gotten really hard and you're like, what's going on? The enemy is after you. Just know this is how he works. But, but Jesus is out there being tempted by the devil and the third temptation was this. Satan comes to him. And he takes Jesus up on this high mountain and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, okay? And he says to Jesus in this moment, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these. You see, this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where God made Adam and Eve and he gave them authority over creation. And when they sinned against the God who created them, they handed that authority over to the enemy, and that authority belonged to him until the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here is what the Satan was saying to Jesus in this moment, I'll give it to you early. I'll give you authority over all the kingdoms of the world early if you will bow down and worship me. And here's what I want you to know. If he would have accepted in that moment, things would be very, very different in our world right now. Okay, one writer named Russell Moore, he put it like this. If Jesus had accepted it, Satan would have surrendered his reign of terror. Jesus could have directed the kingdoms of the world however he wanted. No more babies would be miscarried. No more women would die in childbirth. Ended immediately would be all human slavery, all genocide, all disease, all poverty, all torture, and all ecological catastrophes. The rows and rows of crosses across the highway of the Roman Empire would suddenly be gone. There would never be a Nero or a Napoleon or a Hitler or a Stalin, or at least you would never hear the infamy of those names. There would be no world of divorce courts and abortion clinics and electric chairs and pornographic images. Whatever is troubling you right now would be gone centuries before you were ever conceived. This sounds like paradise. Okay, would you look at me every location? Just look at me if you will. But it's not. But it's not, and here's why. Because if Jesus would have accepted Satan's offer, and if Jesus would have accepted the offer of this crowd in John 6, he would have taken hold of the crown without ever enduring the cross, and the greatest need in your life, which is your spiritual need, would have gone unmet. Okay, hear me on this. That's the bigger point of this story. You're gonna see it as John 6 continues to unfold, but this is the bigger point of the story. If all you see in this story is Jesus feeding a crowd with a little boy's Lunchable, which, come on, is amazing, right? But if that's all you see, you have missed the bigger point. Here's the point. Jesus handles an impossible situation to prove himself as the only one who can handle the most impossible situation you'll ever face, which is this. The fact that you are spiritually dead, stuck in your sin, under the wrath of God, and unable to do anything about it. Can I tell you what your enemy wants you to believe? This is the lie that you have needs in your life that are greater than that need. But man, if your circumstances would just change, if your environment would just change, if, if the job status would just change, if the relationship would just change, oh man, then you would finally know the joy and contentment you have been longing for. This is why people will spend their entire lives chasing things like money, and sex, and power, and influence, and possessions, all at the expense of their spiritual need. Or even worse, is why some people attempt to use Jesus to get all those things at the expense of their greatest need. 
They don't really want Jesus. They just want what Jesus can do for them. And I just want to say, because I love you today, listen, Jesus refuses to be used by you. He will not be used by you. Jesus Christ came to serve you, yes, but he also came to be Lord and King over you, and Jesus will not submit to you in that way. No, the call on your life is to submit to him, to be used by him for his glory and the good of his world. Here's the truth. Even if everything in your life changed today, even if all the circumstances were different, the relationship was different, the job stuff was different, even if you never faced another situation that you could not handle on your own, you would still be stuck in your sin and on your way to an eternity apart from God. But here's the good news. Jesus handled that for you. Jesus handled that for you. And this is the good news of the gospel, that when you were dead in your sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, indulging your flesh, your sinful desires, deserving of the wrath of God. What did God do? Out of his mercy and his great love for you, he made you alive in Jesus Christ. He sent his son to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death you deserved in your place for your sins, to conquer death and hell through his resurrection. And then Jesus Christ ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning in present time. One day he is returning to set all things right in his world. And can I tell you what that proves? That Jesus can handle anything you throw at him. Anything. He handled the most impossible situation you'll ever face, and any other situation that you bring to him pales in comparison to that. And so here's the, uh, the invitation today. You ready? Would you bring to Jesus what you can't handle? Would you bring to Jesus what you can't handle? For some of you, that is your very life. You've never trusted him, you've never surrendered to his lordship, and so you are the person right now, enemy of God, stuck in your sin, under his wrath, under his judgment, but God loves you, and he's given you grace in Jesus, and he invites you into his family. He wants to give you a brand new life starting today, and he will if you'll give your life to Jesus. So in a moment, as the band comes and, and plays and we respond, why don't you just do that? Just in faith, in prayer, wherever you are, just tell Jesus you need him that you believe in what he's done for you and given his life for you, confess him to be Lord and then give the reins of your life over to him. But for others of you, here's what this means. That you need to bring that really hard thing that you're trying to handle to Christ. For some reason, you still have not invited him in. You haven't come and said, Jesus, my marriage is falling apart. Help! Jesus, the job thing, you, you know, man, I'm struggling right now and and I've been doing the resume and checking all the websites, and, but I have not once stopped and just said, Jesus, will you provide? <laughs> Jesus, will you open a door? Some of you, you haven't brought the health challenge. You haven't brought the spouse to Jesus. You haven't asked Jesus to bring the prodigal kid back home. You've just been trying to do all the convincing. And so again, what I wanna invite you to do, bring that thing you can't handle to him. The band's gonna come and play. We're gonna sing, and we're gonna sing a song about Jesus Christ as king. And if you want to take communion, you can. we got elements available, giving boxes if you want to give. But would you pray? Would you press into prayer today? 
And you can do that in your seat if you want to. I just think there's great power, and we've been seeing God stir in this way across all of our locations recently. I think there's great power when we get out of our seats and we come and we get on our knees in the presence of God and we take on a posture of humility and surrender. Physically, we are saying to God, I don't have this. And God, I need your help, and would you enter in? So I want to invite you, man, if you need to, just come, come at every location and get on your knees at the front of this room and let's bring to Jesus what we can't handle and lay it at his feet. Father God, thank you for your word. And we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for your sovereignty and your power for always being in control when life seems out of control. And God, I pray for the person here that doesn't know you, God, would you give them the faith they need to believe to give their life to Jesus today? And God, for all of my brothers and sisters that are facing hard stuff, would you give them the courage and the humility they need to just bring it to you and to leave it in your hands? Holy Spirit of God, in every room that we're gathered in, in Cartersville, in Rome, in Adairsville, Spirit of God, would you show up and move in power? Would you do things in our midst that none of us can take credit for, that can only be explained by the fact that you are here working in our midst? God, we give you this time. Use it for your glory and for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's respond.